0: If you could stand for the reading of Scripture. We'll be reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 5 today, and it's an entirety, um, but the focus of our sermon will be verses 1 through 3. It is actually reported that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind that does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. You have become arrogant and have not mourned instead, so that the one who has done this deed would be removed from your midst. For I, on my part, though absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged him who has committed this, as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people, I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous or and swindlers or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not know those who are... Do you? You, not judge those who are within the church, but those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. This sins the in God's word. Please be seated. Let's
1: go once again before the Lord, before we look to his word. Gracious Lord, as we come to this Sobering text. We ask for the ministering of your Holy Spirit among and within us to remind us how important these things are. For me, by the power of your Spirit, to communicate the importance of these truths for the glory of your name, first and foremost, and the benefit of your people the salvation of the lost, in Christ's name, amen. If you're visiting with us, we welcome you, and I want you to understand that um, our general practice here is consecutive um, expository preaching, that is to go verse by verse, um, book by book, through the scriptures, which um, forces you Um, to preach texts that you might be tempted um, to work around, to dodge, or to just flat out um, ignore. Um, You you can't skip anything that way, that is, by way of true biblical exposition, um, including unpleasant texts like 1 Corinthians chapter 5, which we'll cover, by the way, in two parts. This is not a text that one would normally um, gravitate towards. Can I get a witness? (laughs) But this is an incredibly important passage, not to be overlooked. Neglected um, by most churches today, um, along with Matthew Chapter 18, verses 15 to 20, um, parts of Romans 16, parts of 2 Thessalonians 3, parts of Titus 3, um, all of which teach different aspects of church um, discipline. Uh, They're ignored because so many men who stand in places like this have bought into the tolerant spirit of the age. Discipline? They ask, "Well, aren't we supposed to what coexist? Shouldn't we question authority? And then of course, there are those who, who grossly uh, mishandle Scripture, grabbing biblical statements, verses from the Bible, bending them out of context, raising their arms, saying, "We're told not to judge lest we be judged. And if we judge, we're hypocrites. Matthew 7, verse 1. A text that has to do about judging correctly, by the way. This morning, um, in part one um, of this message, I want to dispel any notion that church discipline is unloving, but is in fact the most loving thing you can do as a church if it is warranted. Church discipline, let me tell you this, uh, is one area of church life that keeps ministers and, and pastors up at night if you have to implement it. The duty that discipline imposes is hard, grievous, heartbreaking duty. It's not to be taken lightly or flippantly. So despite all of the difficulties associated with corporate church discipline, Christ commands it of his church. You know, the reformers considered church discipline to be one of the three marks of a true church, along with biblical exposition, teaching the whole counsel of God, And the exercise of the ordinances, the observance of ordinances, baptism, and the Lord's Supper. Those three things, when exercised correctly, make up what a true church is and is to be. So any so-called church that doesn't practice church discipline, guess what? Newsflash. It's not a true church. It's not a true church. Now, unfortunately, um, the first priority of many preachers is to please people. They're people pleasers, so um, they sit on the fence of most issues with their finger in the air uh, to determine which way the wind is blowing, and guess what? The wind never blows in the direction of church discipline when you're a man pleaser. And those many... Um, have become convinced that church discipline just, it's not very nice. It's unkind. It hurts people's feelings. It's not loving. It's not gracious. It's, it's just plain cruel and harsh. Fearful as they are to pay the price for proclaiming the whole counsel of God. Now, anytime the goal is to build large, um, user-friendly churches, you're forced to shy away from any form of church discipline, or you will lose people, especially when it comes to publicly telling the church. Look, if you will, at Matthew 18. Matthew 18, verse 15. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault, in private, if he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. You know that God so hates divisiveness within the church. We're instructed in Titus 3, verse 10, to skip step three of church discipline. Reject a factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. What does it say? Reject him. There have been men that have attended here, not members, but they've attended for some time, and you may wonder, I wonder whatever happened to that guy. That's what happened to some of those guys right there. They were divisive, and we rejected them. You know, both in the Old and New Testaments, excommunication is to be public. Now, we've had to publicly name people from the pulpit five times in 13 years. Not a pleasant duty. And it's not an overnight thing either. One guy we worked with for quite a while, until he was involved with felonious activity, we had to name him. Seeing someone publicly named or excommunicated from a church can have a chilling effect on superficial church members. For the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Now, we'll often say, well, the goal, you know, is is to restore the individual. But let me say this. uh, the, The ultimate goal of church discipline is not solely for the purpose of restoring a person who's fallen headlong into sin back into fellowship. That's not the case. It's not solely for that purpose. Though do we desire that, that is not the ultimate goal when we exercise church discipline. Because oftentimes that doesn't happen. I think we're three for five. We've restored three out of those five over the 13 years. We named them publicly. We restored three of them publicly. One is now a self-professed apostate, denies Christ. The other, I don't know. More than all of that, that is more than the restoration of the individual to the body of Christ, is that we uphold the honor of God who is holy and demands that his church be kept pure. That's the ultimate goal of church discipline. Because there's more at stake than simply hoping it will bring about the repentance of the offender. There is the protection and purification of his body. There is, in view, the witness of his church. Therefore, these instructions are for his church, it's his. It's his church. And this is what he demands. They're not to be ignored because of someone's personal view. And by the way, dear Christian brother or sister, um, your opinions are irrelevant if they do not align to the word of God. Irrelevant. So, let me say this. The issue is not there are sinners in the church. Of course there are sinners in the church. We're sinners saved by grace, which make up the church of Jesus Christ. Sinners, by the way, who have been brought to saving faith in Jesus Christ, whose death makes atonement for your sins and turns aside the wrath of God for which you will never taste because he bore it all. He went to the cross for you. And because of Christ's sacrifice on your behalf, the sacrifice of Christ, appropriated by way of saving faith, cleanses you from all guilt and the penalty of your sin that is due. You will never be judged for your sin. Christ took it all. Do we understand this? Sinners saved by grace. Yet, still within us, sin resides. Anybody reach the place of sinless perfection yet? Liar. (laughs) Of course not. That is to say, the church gathered together is not the abode of the perfected who've reached a place of sinlessness. It's not that. The church has been rightly described as a hospital for sinners. Sinners saved by grace. So that means that while there should always be Um, the appropriate grace um, for each and every one of us who struggles with sin. Um, Those, however, who insist upon living as a law unto themselves, who harden their hearts in unrepentance when confronted, if they continue in their unrepentance, the charge is they must be removed from the body because they are now an infection to the body. You know, it's no surprise that um, the unbelieving world um, does not share our, our morals and values. Is that a surprise to anyone? Of course not. But when Christians don't live up to what they claim to believe, and the church ignores it, what does the world do? They point and they say, look, there they go, bunch of hypocrites. That's the introduction to the text. Last time, we concluded Paul's sustained argument that he began in chapter one, um, addressing the pride that was infecting the church there at Corinth, causing divisions. Many of them, Paul said, were puffed up, puffed up in their estimation of themselves, Paul had reminded them of the gospel that he preached. I came and I preached Christ crucified. And when God's grace is rightly understood, it does away with all boasting. It does away with factions, division, puffiness, arrogance of of self-aggrandizement. Or it ought to. Entering chapter 5. Paul takes on a particular form of pride. A particular form of pride that was a major issue in, in the life of this church. Um, a problem that, that is uh, a little more than just unsettling for the Apostle Paul here. And that is the arrogance of tolerance. The arrogance Of tolerance is what he addresses in this chapter. So here we enter one of the most sobering um, and strongly worded sections in the entire epistle. Verse 1, notice, it is actually reported that there is immorality among you and immorality of such a kind as does not even exist among the Gentiles that someone has his father's wife. A report. Now, this is likely um, the same report brought to him by Chloe's people. If you remember in chapter 1 and verse 11, Chloe's people, not sure who Chloe's people are, but Chloe's people um, um, journeyed into Ephesus from where Paul writes this letter, and he gives them a report on the factions and the immorality um, going on in the church at Corinth. A report. And it's immorality. The word is porneia which includes all kinds of illicit sexual relationships. It takes on many forms, and that is anything that is outside of the biblical marriage bed. And the biblical marriage bed um, is a a man and a woman together who are married. So it's outside of that. And and Paul here expresses shock and and dismay that, verse 1, someone has his father's wife which likely means that the man in question um, is with his stepmother in an incestuous relationship. Now, it may be, we don't know for sure, we're not told, it may be that um, the, the father um, had divorced the man's biological mother, or the biological mother died, and um, the husband um, remarried someone, I'm um, younger, I'm um, close in age to the man in question here, and, and he either seduced her, or the man's biological father died, and he joined himself together with this widowed stepmother. We're, we're not told exactly, but nevertheless, we read that he has her. He has his father's wife. has this present tense, indicating some kind of permanent situation, um, not a singular occasion. In other words, there's an ongoing physical relationship between this man and his stepmother. A relationship that's widely known within the church, regarded um, as utterly scandalous by pagans of all people. Notice there in in the text, immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles. And this is going on in the church of Jesus Christ. I mean, this is Corinth, friends. This, this is, Corinth was the cesspool of immorality. And what was being allowed and actually applauded in the church of Jesus Christ what was even something that the pagans of the day thought to be repulsive. You get the picture here, beloved? Scripture clearly forbids this, by the way, in the Old Testament, Leviticus 18, Leviticus 20, Deuteronomy 22 and 27. A man shall not have his father's wife. We read, you shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife. That means to be in the same bed. So the ungodliness of this man, what was immoral, it was a violation of God's law and scandalous to pagans. And they're just applauding it. And what's even more concerning to Paul here is what he points out in verse two. You have become arrogant, notice, and have not mourned instead, so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. So he's addressing the church for not addressing the man in his sin, for not carrying out church discipline. That's the rebuke. Notice you is plural. You have become arrogant, and they did nothing to address this heinous sin. They, they were actually boasting about this sin. If you look at verse 6, they were boasting. That means that they were smug, arrogant, in their posture of tolerance. Smug. In their posture Of tolerance. Proud not to concern themselves with things like this. After all, who are we to judge? You know what that is? To have that mindset? That's arrogance, Paul says. That's arrogant. This was a corporate sin, a congregational sin, because of their failure to point it out. They just had a nonchalant attitude. Now, since the woman is not being addressed, did you notice that? It's obvious that she's not part of the church, which means she's not a believer. Now, Paul will say, put the man out. He says nothing about the woman involved, so she's obviously not part of this church, not a believer. So here, this incestuous relationship, which was bad enough, um, far worse than that was their failure to act, Proud as they were about their tolerance. And they obviously didn't see things clearly, did they? They weren't looking through the gospel lens. They had bad theology and insufficient understanding of the gospel was blinding them to what was really at stake. The gospel was not being allowed to shape their lives. They were not translating the gospel into real life. That's dangerous. This, there's a man among you, verse 1. A man among you. That means he's a professing believer. He's involved in unrepentant, persistent immorality. Paul says, notice, let him be removed from among you, verse 2. Now you might ask, well, what about steps one and two? They just cut the guy off. I don't see any step one here. No step two, not even tell it to the church. They just cut the guy off. Well, if you look at verse nine, notice, you'll see apparently that this is not the first time Paul has had cause to write them about the subject. Notice there's a reference to a previous letter this letter is now lost to us by the way um, 1 Corinthians is only the first of the letters we have there's another letter apparently a prior letter um, lost to us that the Corinthians had received notice he says i wrote to you i wrote to you not to associate with sexually immoral people that is anyone who bears the name christian brother And it's clear now that those earlier instructions have gone unheeded. They ignored Paul's instruction, the apostle. Notice verse 2, the Corinthians were arrogant. What were they arrogant about, beloved? Quite simply, the porneia. They were arrogant about the porneia. They were accepting of the porneia, the immorality This man and his sin had become a badge for their tolerance. Of their liberty, our freedom in Christ. We're forward-thinking people, I'm sure they thought. You hear the echo of this, beloved, in our day? You hear this? Look how accepting we are. Look how non-judgmental we are. Look how loving we are. Oh, we're so loving. Proud of themselves for being a, an affirming church. An affirming church. We affirm everyone no matter what they choose to do or who they choose to be. We affirm them all. We're charitable, we're, we're loving, we're tolerant, we're, we're, we're progressive, Today's church, we're progressive. This is pride, puffed up. Pride inevitably leads to corruption within the church of Jesus Christ. They're always tied together. Pride and corruption go hand in hand. If you remember in 2 Chronicles 26, we read that Hezekiah became proud in his heart and acted wickedly. Pride in the heart of the church now they act wickedly. They tolerate the immorality going on within the body of Jesus Christ. It's his body, his church. But Paul does no applauding here, beloved. Notice he does not applaud them. He says, The problem with all y'all is that you should have mourned, okay? This man's sin, he says, you ought to have grieved over because it is an affront. To holy God, an affront. Friends, if God, Almighty, declares something is sinful, we must not cultivate it. Amen. We must not feed into it regardless of cultural acceptance on that particular issue. Friends. In our day, let's, let's move up to our day. The more that our culture is bombarded with pornea, all forms of pornea, three things will inevitably occur. As it is bombarded with all forms of pornea, number one, it will become more and more culturally and socially accepted. That's the first thing. Number two is that Christians become less and less shocked by it. Anybody? It's less shocking to me, to be quite honest. That's why you've got to be driven to the word and driven by the word so that there's some shock value left. The, the less that Christians are shocked, number three, is that the more vulnerable they are of accepting it. You get this? And soon thereafter, adopted social norms begin to threaten the purity of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Pride says, you know, we don't agree with those outdated commands of ancient scripture. We're so wise. Corruption says we don't use the word sin. Oh, no. We affirm everyone's identity. We affirm how you feel. We're a loving church. Any church that dismisses God's word due to cowardly, spineless leaders who, under the pressure of culture, begin to scratch their chins and they speak arrogantly, this false piety, you think, think about these. They, they scratch their chin and they piously say, you know, um, I've begun to reevaluate my views on gender identity, um, on gay marriage or, or whatever cultural topic, hot topic is being promoted and they call it love. They call it being loving. That's not loving. That's not humility. That is puffed up arrogance. Pride. In the heart of anyone who calls themselves a Christian. You do not have the right, Christian, to define and practice love as you see fit. Did you know that? We define And we practice love as governed by the word of God, not man, not culture, not yourself, but the word of God. Because any Christian who views themselves of having a more loving standard than God, that is arrogant pride. You're puffed up and you need to repent right now, period. Period. So claiming to be more loving than God, you're claiming to be wiser than God. After all, you live in the 21st century. Ooh, we're progressive. No, you're an utter fool. That's what you are. Because now you call good evil and evil good. That's what fools do. And you try to justify it by saying, well, we as a church are more loving and accepting. as the old church. Young people, young people, listen up. The more you are introduced to the world out there, as you grow and begin to step out and away from the loving, nurturing, and training of your parents, the pressure on you will increase. The pressure on you will increase to reshape your views on what is good and what is evil. What is true and what is false. And the temptation for you will be, you want to be liked by culture. You want to be respected in a Christless world. So you will be tempted to to leave a sound, gospel-centered church and may dabble into some crazy, false religion. That'll be the temptation. Or you'll be tempted to simply depart altogether from the church. That will happen in your lives. Prepare yourselves now to stay rooted in the truth, grounded in the gospel that your mom and dad and your pastor proclaim to you. Because it's his truth. Amen? You will be tempted. You will be tempted. Temptation is not a sin. So when you're pressed and you start to rethink things in your head, no one knows but you and the Lord, that's not sin in itself. We're tempted. Jesus was tempted. We're tempted. So therefore, run back to the truth and stand on it. Rest in it. Because you will be pressed. He'll hold you up. Cry for help to the Lord, amen? You will be pressured. Who doesn't want to be liked? I have enough enemies, and I don't even try. (laughs) Some people may argue with that, but. (laughs) Now, friends, this, by the way, this is not a call to hate those out in the world who are opposed to God. Amen? Do we see this? Let's not miss this. Look at verse 9. Do you not know that the, un- oh, wrong chapter, verse 9. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers or idolaters, for then you'd have to go out of the world. Why? They're everywhere. And by the way, you once were one of these. When you get to chapter six. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? Answer, of course you do. God judges those on the outside. Your duty is to make a right and proper judgment event. And I'm not talking about being nitpicky. We're talking about blatant, obvious, public sins like this. Amen? Do we get the distinctions down here? Nobody likes a nitpicker. The world, God judges. What's our job to the world? To declare the gospel, the law. God is holy, you're a sinner just like me. I always use myself as an example when I evangelize. I deserve hell, that's what I deserve. I'm a sinner. God demands absolute perfection. I've I've missed the mark. Everyone has missed the mark. It's proven by the fact that everyone dies. The wages of sin is death. It's appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. You're gonna be judged as God graves not on a curve But according to his holy, perfect standard, you'll miss the mark. And if you die outside of Christ, you must pay for your own sins. That's that's eternal separation from the grace and the kindness and goodness of God to bear his wrath for eternity. So repent, call on the Lord Jesus Christ, who came down and upheld the law, laid down his life, was crucified, bore the wrath of God, was raised again the third day, ascended to the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. Put your faith and trust in him by grace that's available, hopefully, at this moment, and you too shall be saved. That's our job. They're already judged. Anyone outside of Christ is already, the gospel of John tells us, what? Condemned. We declare the truth. So the context here, beloved, has to do um, with not affirming unrepentant sin within the church. We see this? See, if you think more about people in hurting their feelings than about God before whom the people are sinning, you got your categories all jacked up. You've completely, completely lost sight of the holiness of God. That's why we exercise church discipline. Five times in 13 years, that's a blessing, amen? That's not a lot. Five times meaning Publicly. Paul says, Look, you're all puffed up, you're arrogant, while well, you ought to have been mourning over this. And that should have resulted in the removal of this individual, excommunication of this man from the body of Christ. Because a little leaven leavens the whole lump. You know, gain green, if it's not dealt with, will kill you. I grew up next to a lady, Mrs. Weber who happened to be a retired nurse. And she had some infection in her foot. I think it started in her foot. And, you know, she had um, eventually gangrene, which was going to consume her body, so they had to cut her leg off at the knee. So the last years of Mrs. Weber, I remember, in her wheelchair, pushing herself around on one leg, doing the weeding in her garden and all that. Great lady, love her. She had gangrene. Look, gangrene? is in the body here at Corinth, and peroxide in a Band-Aid will not keep it from spreading. Got to be cut off. That's what he's after. Verse two, remove him. Verse seven, clean out the old leaven. Verse nine, I wrote you not to associate. Verse 11, not even to eat with such a one. Verse 13, remove the wicked man from among yourselves. That's a very loving act for Christ. That's a very loving act for the body of Christ. And that's a very loving act to the offender with the hope of his repentance. Loving. This isn't some pagan we're talking about here, beloved. This is one who calls himself a brother brought to saving faith in Jesus Christ, cleansed from his sin, who refuses to obey Christ. That will negatively affect the rest of the body. That's the gangrene that will spread. That's the leaven. That leavens the whole lump. Cut it off. So that's real love. That's that's what we call long-haul love. Long-haul love rooted in the scripture. This is not short-term love based on your own emotional convenience. We don't want to hurt anyone's feelings. Remove the leaven. Let me say this. This church, Pacific Hope Church, this ought to be the place, and I do believe that it is a place that welcomes pagans of all stripes unbelievers of all stripes who don't know Christ who are lost who are unregenerate ignorant of the truth a welcoming place I hope to come and hear the free grace gospel of Jesus Christ now if you're unregenerate the last thing you want to feel I would hope that they are as comfortable under the preaching until they're brought to saving faith by the way of grace through the gift of faith but this place, I hope, is a loving place that pagans know they can come and hear the free grace gospel. For instance, we, uh, we did a, a funeral here for a friend of ours. That is my wife and I. A friend, She was a friend for years. She was a lesbian. Um, and we witnessed the gospel to her for years. She died. So we had the funeral here. And the place was filled with Quite a number of people, many of whom were homosexuals. So what did I do? I preached the free grace gospel of Jesus Christ, and then my wife and some of the other ladies um, fed them. They were overwhelmed by the hospitality. We we actually had to. It was like late in the day. It was Saturday night. We said, you know, y'all got to go home. (laughs) They were very comfortable. Okay? But friends, there's a fundamental difference of category when scandalous, unrepentant sin takes place within the body of Christ. World of difference. That is not to be ignored because you are forgiven, because you are justified, you are cleansed. But one refuses to obey in blatant unrepentance. It must be addressed, says Paul. Verse 2 remove him. You know what the word remove means in verse 2? Remove. That's what it means. Why do I say that? Because some men I love and respect try to argue that this is teaching merely to prohibit them from the Lord's table. Nonsense. Remove the man, remove him, cut him off. Now, later on in Corinthians, there appears to be someone who's trying to get back into the church, and the church is holding him off. And Paul says, Receive him with open arms. My hope is that it's this man who repented. Because <laughs> that, that is the goal, but that's not the ultimate goal. The goal is restoration, but the ultimate goal is upholding the holiness of God within his church. It's his. Remove him. Now, when this practice is not carried out for for fear of of, of seeming to be unloving, we don't know what love is. If you say that's unloving, you don't know what love is. And you ought to be singing, I want to know what love is. Right here. (laughs) Somebody listens to rock and roll out there. He says, with affection and mourning of soul, with tears and a broken heart, we stand now as the voice of Christ. And to, to tell this brother that your manner of life is contrary to the word of God. We call you to repent. This is scandalous sin. Even the pagans don't do that. Verse three. For I, on my part, Though absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this as though I were present. Now, when Paul says this, present in spirit, this is not some mystical thing. He's simply referring to his apostolic authority. This is the same authority that Jesus passed down to the disciples in Matthew 18. Passed on to church leadership. So this guy is already judged, and now he's to be turned outside and out from underneath the blessing and protection of the church to be thrown out into the world, to be cast out into the harsh, barren, desolate world. Next time, I turn him over to Satan. If you think this is tough, wait till we get to that. Satan, who is the prince of the world, Prince of the world. Striking. Quite simply, beloved, people who claim to love God and don't hate the sins that he hates, both in ourselves, right, I begin with myself, in ourselves and in others, don't truly love God and perhaps don't truly know God. Therefore, the danger that discipline addresses here is a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Don't ignore it. It leavens the whole lump. Gain green will spread. So difficult as it is to carry out church discipline, whenever there is persistent unrepentance and we act on it, that is indeed an act of love. An act of love for Christ, his church, and the person who's the offender. You know, the faithful exercise of church discipline will protect and preserve the purity of, again, his church. That's why we're commanded. You know, the church cannot prevent evil, amen? Amen. The church cannot prevent evil from occurring within, but she must practice discipline when it comes to the surface, and it's unrepentant sin. You know, the leadership of Pacific Hope Church, the elders and the deacon, we cannot prevent evil from taking place within this body. It's beyond the power of leadership to do that in any church. When it comes to the surface and it's not repented of, it must be addressed. Many times we we deal with things and people who are in some blatant sin, dealing with someone right now, and you don't know about it yet. And hopefully you won't have to know about it because the goal is with the hope of their what? We read it in Matthew 18, repentance. Repentance. And then the instruction is, don't even eat with them. You don't act like everything's all right once you name someone. You don't just act like everything's okay. Now, if you do get together, you address the situation. You address their unrepentance. With the hope of what? Gaining them back. That's why you tell the church when it comes to that point. Then the church goes after them. Because they've been dodging leadership for three years, perhaps. So the responsibility of the elders is not to prevent evil. We just preach the word and then we practice discipline when need be. Or our testimony will go. That is the church's testimony. It will go right out the window. The glory of the Lord will be affected. We see this, beloved? Sobering. So while the elders are responsible to carry out discipline, the members are responsible to support the elders as they carry out that discipline. Witness on the right? My right? Middle? (laughs) I was looking for people who weren't saying amen. Not a pleasant thing to do. Nobody wants to do this. That's the last thing we want to do. It's the last thing I want to do. Is he getting ready to name someone? No. <laughs> Hope not. So friends, let's, let us not make the mistake of thinking that um, this action is harsh, that this action is unloving. This is all about loving the gospel. This is all about loving and honoring the God of the gospel. This is about loving what Christ loves, and that is his church. And loving the man here in all that is its sake, whoever this man is, loving him. So we we don't get to dictate what love looks like, in other words. Amen? And don't let culture dictate it for you. This here is what love looks like. So as the people of God, um, we, we are required to define and practice what love looks like as governed by the word of God. He who is love. Amen? He who laid down his life is a ransom for many. Do you know him? Are you saved from the impending judgment due to you and your sin? If you're not sure, perhaps the Holy Spirit has brought you here this day to grant you the repentance required before him, almighty holy God, to bow down in your heart with a repentance, to call on his name to save you. And I assure you, by the resident presence of God, the Holy Spirit, he will reveal to you that he paid for your sins on the cross as you grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. Repent, come to Christ, and you too shall be saved. Father, thank you for the gospel. Thank you. For this very hard text, but um, help us to understand um, what it is to love what you love. Um, and also, um, for all of our lost friends in the world, um, may we remember that we're not their judge. We're ambassadors for Christ to bring to them the glorious truth of free gospel grace, to simply declare it, to pray, to move on, and with some. We know it will be a long-haul relationship. And may our testimony, our lives, and the words that come out of our mouths bear witness of you in a way that we would be able to see the harvest of their soul in time. pray for Christ's sake. Amen.